In Russia, private military companies controlled by oligarchs with ties to strongman Vladimir Putin pose a growing threat to U.S. interests. My next guest argues the Defense Department needs to develop a strategy to deal with so-called PMCs. U.S. armed forces could find themselves in hot conflict with PMCs. Then what? We get some answers from the senior military fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and active duty Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Joe Moy. Lieutenant Colonel Moy, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. So these PMCs, private military companies, describe them for us. Who are they? What do they do typically for Russia? So I guess, Tom, I should start off with, as an active duty Marine, what I'm going to talk with you about today are my views from my research and don't in any way represent the United States government policy, Department of Defense, the Marine Corps, or the Navy. So when we talk about private military companies, the term that we use PMCs, as we use it, refers to any company that performs a tactical support mission during military operations, trains state and non-state forces, or conducts any other military support force. What makes Russia different than other countries' private military companies is that Russian PMCs are specifically prohibited by Russian penal code. And so Russian law prohibits private military companies, so mercenaries in another term. And so these companies work outside of Russia and get contracts outside of Russia. And so what we're seeing is this is somewhat of a control mechanism. And the fact that their legal status is what it is, they operate outside of and presents another form of deniability for the Russian government. Got it. And the contracts that they get come from Russia? So some of the companies that are within this network of shell and front companies do have contracts within Russia, but under a different name and a different context. So a security company or a services company. But the larger private military companies are getting contracts with other nations. For example, getting a contract in Mozambique, getting a contract in the Central African Republic. So they're getting contracts elsewhere, but they're based in and out of different places. Yeah, that's an interesting twist on interpreting your own laws. If something's illegal in your own country, but go ahead over to Ukraine or something and do whatever. But do they take orders from the Russian military? Well, there is no overt Uh, direction from the Russian military, but reports and studies have shown that there is a connection between organizations within the Russian government and private military companies. You see that in Ukraine, you see that in Syria, you've seen that in Libya and other smaller countries. So while there is no publicly overt connection you can infer and see those ties. They're almost like underground mercenaries in some sense. Well, they're almost uh, a semi-state entity, as has been described by others. And what is the danger then to U.S. interests? How do they mix up the idea of conflict that we have diplomatically, I guess, at this point, financially with Russia? So far, thank God, not militarily. Well, Tom, what the colonel and I in, in our article really wanted to highlight the dangers to the Department of Defense and military personnel, Right. And so there's a much broader context with uh, Russian PMCs from state to state. But when you look at the tactical units that the United States has deployed overseas, 
for whatever we're sending them for, the danger to those units is their interactions and co-location with private military companies and the potential for intersection and engagement. We wanna make sure that our service members that are deployed overseas are better armed and prepared for encountering these entities. And that's really what we want to focus our paper on. The implication being that our military is proscribed from open warfare or shooting at civilian entities, basically. It has to do with our rules of engagement. Is that a good way to put exactly. it? Exactly. We don't want to put young service members in a bad situation where they're not prepared or know exactly what their rules and guidelines are when engaging or encountering these companies. We're speaking with Joe Moy. He's senior military fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. So what could be some possible strategies for the Defense Department to deal with this potential? Well, first and foremost, Tom, it's understanding the environments that we're going to be in. Anytime you're going to conduct an operation or be anywhere, timely intelligence and understanding the environment will better prepare service members to know what potential threats are out there. And so that's the first thing is understanding your environment and then providing clear guidance to units that are forward in countries that we're we're operating or, or supporting and making sure that they know how to deal with those individuals. And then at the very least, active security measures to protect our force, right? So we have seen some private military companies from Russia that are conducting cyber and information operations. And so being able to protect your own force is kind of uh, rule number one, right? So making sure that disinformation campaigns aren't putting service members at risk while we're trying to advance a U.S. interests. And just as a practical matter, are the people that work for these PMCs trained in any way in military tactics? And are they equipped with military-grade weapons, for example? So a lot of the PMCs are former uh, military and intelligence personnel from Russia. That's no different than other PMCs, uh, that uh, you try to find talent uh, to perform the tasks that those private military companies are, are getting contracts for, whether that's security, whether that's training local forces, whether that's conducting cyber and information operations. They are looking for talent from within their populations. And so, yes, you will find PMC contractors that are skilled in military tactics, in cyber, in in all kinds of skill sets. So let me pose a scenario. Suppose in a given location, U.S. forces are trying to, say, a peacekeeping mission or an observational mission, and they find that their communications are being jammed, for example, and their back-and-forth communications are being subject to cyber attacks, their systems that they have deployed there. And suppose they know the locus of where that's coming from, and it's a PMC. What could be a possible response? Could they go in and push the people aside and smash up all of the equipment that's doing the jamming and the cyber attacks? But then they would be likely to encounter protective shell people that are trained and have background, as you mentioned. So what could happen in a situation like that? Tom, that's why it's important to be able to lay out the guidance on those rules of engagement, right? Because even though it's suspected that these private military companies are a arm of Russian influence in the government, 
they are still civilians, right? And so we have to make sure that our service members know what they can do. And so there's all possible scenarios that could come from that. The best possible scenario is that the commanders on the ground are given the authorities and resources to protect themselves and that they're making good decisions without escalating between nations. Sure, and that they don't get second-guessed back in Washington, say, in the halls of Congress. Well, uh, Maybe you can't go there. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't go there. All right. But it is fair to say that for the Defense Department to have this kind of strategy in place, this kind of education, it really is a whole-of-government need in terms of force protection for the U.S. military. Yes. So we've seen what can happen when PMCs and U.S. forces are co-located, right? So in 2018, uh, American forces defended themselves in Syria when were advanced by a private military company and local forces. And so the rules of engagement were in place and open communication with the Russian government was in place. And at the end of the day, the American forces there had the inherent right to self-protection, and they exercised that. And so what we want to be able to do is ensure that across the spectrum of conflict, that all forces have that in place so that they're not put in a bad place for there. So we know now this is not purely a potential then. That's correct. We have seen this before, and with the increase in presence by private military companies across the globe, from Africa to Europe to the Middle East to even South America, American forces are going to find themselves co-located or engaged with a private military company. Joe Moy is Senior Military Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's a Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Uh, it was good to be here, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and also a link to the article that he wrote for Brookings. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. 
And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. There are plenty of shopping cards out there. The last thing I need is more store-branded cards, and that got me thinking. 
What if I could earn more, like 6% cash back, but with one card at all of my favorite stores? Well, the folks at U.S. Bank are on it. Check out the U.S. Bank Shopper Cash Rewards Visa Signature Card. It can earn you up to 6% cash back. 6%, not bad. Check out usbank.com slash shopper to learn more. It's easy. You just grab your shopping list and shop two of your favorite retailers for up to 6% cash back. And you can change your two selections every quarter. I'm talking 24 different big name retailers like Amazon, Walmart, Target. That would be good enough. But this card can also earn you up to $250 cash back after you spend $2,000 within the first 120 days of opening your account. And who doesn't do that at Amazon, Walmart, or Target, for God's sake? You can also earn up to 3% cash back from your choice of one everyday category like gas and EV charging stations, bills and utilities, or wholesale clubs. Plus, you'll earn 1.5% cash back on all other eligible purchases. You deserve premium awards, and the U.S. Bank Shopper Cash Rewards card is here for you. Learn more at usbank.com slash shopper and start earning. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.